What is the effect of environmental standards on agricultural value chains? Do they help or hinder chances for the global south to benefit? That's what we want to discuss today. I'm Nicholas Martin. Thanks for listening. Mangoes or rice, chocolate or even timber, just to mention a few agricultural products that are heavily exported from several countries in the global south to the global north. More and more of these products are grown, harvested and processed in line with environmental standards and labels. These standards are meant to improve environmental conditions. And consumers might think an environment-friendly label also improves the social conditions. It just sounds plausible. Because whoever cares for the environment also cares for the workers and the smallholder farmers, right? Well, many certification schemes do consider more dimensions of sustainability, but not all. And there is an increasing evidence that some environmental standards do even worsen the social and economic conditions of firms and farms in the global south. Today, we have a look at this evidence and I'm happy to be joined by Arti Krishnam, She's a lecturer in sustainability and innovation at Allianz Manchester Business School. Thank you so much for joining us today, Artie. Thank you very much for having me, Nicholas. Artie, preparing this podcast, I've been Googling a little bit and I've been looking on how many environmental standards we have in the EU. And I found a list of more than 200. Can you give us some context? How relevant are these standards by now and what are roughly the differences? You're completely right, Nicholas. By my count, there are 246 standards alone in this market that call themselves sustainable. <laughs> so, which means that they're accounting for economic, social and environmental dimensions. And just to give you some context, when I say environmental, I mean things like waste and water management or soil management, carbon, climate change, biodiversity. And when I mention things like social, it could be things such as giving fair wages to workers or improving their working conditions. And economic refers to things such as product safety or quality improvements. So you can imagine standards have to comprise of all these different dimensions. And it's funny, it's now standards are everywhere, right? You walk into a supermarket, you pick up uh -huh. some bananas, you pick up some chocolates, and you probably see a label that looks like fair trade. And you know what that is, and maybe you're more likely to buy it over others. Or you look at carrots and beans and you see standards like organic. These are all actually standards that have now become so mainstreamed in our overall system. Mm, and now you mentioned the different dimensions of standards, but there's also differences between public and private standards, right? Yes, there are. Now, th that's the main big difference is a lot of public standards in general are what are called mandatory standards. So these are standards set by governments, like the EU will have a general food safety law for safety of and hygiene of consumption for human beings. You will have mandatory standards that are global, like set by the World Trade Organization called cytosanitary standards or SPS standards, again, for safe human consumption. But then there are lots and lots of private standards. Now, private standards can vary. You can have some that are run by 
ginormous companies like Starbucks, for instance, will have its own standard called Cafe Direct. Unilever has its own standards. But then you also have standards that are led by NGOs, like non-governmental organizations, such as Fair Trade, for example, or Rainforest Alliance, for example. And then you may also have these very large collaborative standards that are sometimes called multi-stakeholder because they have so many different industries as well as NGOs that are part of it. So these are things like, you know, the round table on sustainable palm oil, mm. where you have to grow palm oil in a sustainable way or the Marine Stewardship Council, for example, to ethically source salmon or the Forest Stewardship Council, which you'll probably see on every bit of paper that you buy. So there are all these different kinds of standards and these are generally classed as private standards. So are these standards getting more important for all products, RT, or other products where you would say that are certified and labeled more often? Yeah, so that's an interesting point. So there are some slight differences between what standards are. So you see, there is a standard. So like I mentioned, Starbucks, that's a standard. But mm -hmm. then what happens is when you get something like fair trade, it moves from a standard to what we call a certification, which means that it has been audited by a third party or an external person come and audits what happens on the ground where fair trade has been implemented. While for standards such as the Starbucks Cafe and some of the others, Starbucks themselves audit. So there is a mixed level in transparency of a standard like Starbucks, which is audited by themselves, while there's a standard like Fairtrade or organic that's audited by somebody outside. So if you see products that are certified with the label and some products, especially agricultural products, you will tend to see that happen more often because there's a lot of visibility people understand and you can see that there is a standard and there is a label on the product. And while there might be some level of auditing for Starbucks-like standards, the problem with that is that sometimes people know, sometimes people don't really know whether these standards are actually fair or not. But then there yeah. is a murky little bit of standards in between, which are called standards like global good agricultural practices. And these are standards farmers in places need to take up in order to comply with requirements that companies make, but they don't have a label. So they'll be using a standard, but there's no label on the packaging. So even if a standard is complied with, you may not actually come to see that there is an actual label. So mm -hmm. overarchingly, you'll see that certifications are a lot more common, but they're more expensive. So it'll depend. It's a lot easier for certifications to happen in products like bananas and products like avocados, which are easily packaged. There is a lot of demand for it in the market. Avocados, for example, carrots, for example, mm -hmm. that are exported. But you will see a lot more of these standards being employed in countries in the global north and a lot less in countries in the global south. Mm. But again, if a consumer is going to choose a standard, he can assume that a private standard is less strictly monitored than 
a standard that is monitored by a third party. Is that correct? Yes. So private standards, which are first party standards, might be less monitored. Again, it's very difficult because none of standard organizations need to necessarily publish results of the auditing. You only see whether companies comply with it or don't comply with it, but you don't see what happens behind the scenes. So you can't Uh always tell. Because, for example, uh, let's think of it this way. Companies like uh, Mondelez. So this company owns Cadbury, Milka, Philadelphia cheese, Oreo, Toblerone. Think of it, they own everything. But all Hmm. of these are mostly first-party standards, which is Mondelez have their own standard, but certain products, for example, within Cadbury, are fair trade or organic. So Mm -hmm. companies can have a mix of both. And why this is so important? Because Mondelez will probably have 80% of its products that are first-party audited, which means they audit themselves, so we don't know. And some Mm -hmm. that are third-party audited, like the organic and fair trade. But the turnover of Mondelez is equal to the GDP of the country of Bolivia. Mm. So Mm. you can imagine how important it is for understanding these differences between first and third party auditing, which are really never known to the public or shown to the public. So Mm. again, it's for the public to make its decision. And there is mixed evidence that shows that in some cases, first party standards have done okay like in Mm -hmm. coffee or sometimes in cocoa. But in a lot of cases, third-party audited standards have seen to be a lot more fair. And you have been looking at these standards and our main topic is actually what is the evidence of these environmental standards. Can you tell us a little bit more about what is your research result? Do you think that there are benefits of using environmental standards overall? So the evidence is quite mixed from my studies because you see a lot of these standards are designed in specific ways, which means they have certain kinds of mandatory control points within them. And by control points, I mean, for example, they'll tell you how much chemicals to use. They might tell you the quality of water that needs to be applied. They might tell you what kind of biodiversity measures need to be done. And now you see that when you apply a certain standard in different country contexts, with different environments and different cultural backgrounds, there is difficulties in how these standards may or may not be taken up. But there are lots Uh of benefits. So for example, in India, IDH, which is an NGO based in the Netherlands, has pushed for an initiative called the Better Cotton Initiative. So Uh basically here farmers are growing cotton for the apparel sector primarily. And cotton is a very contested sector in India because it's grown in a very dry and arid areas of the country as well. And many farmers are completely dependent on this for their growth. So since using this Better Cotton Initiative, which basically has enabled improving decent work conditions. Incomes have increased by almost 35% in some parts of India with farmers who are actually using things like better cotton initiatives. Mm. And then you have similar examples in Kenya, for example, where they export almost 80% of the green beans you get in Europe 
as well as avocados that you get. So they use standards such as global good agricultural practices, which I was talking about the hidden standard which they need to follow. Mm. What that's actually shown is because there needs to be so much of data collected at each point, so that every green bean that you consume here, say in Germany or say in the UK, you need to know where it's come from. It needs to be traceable, and because of that data collection. Now, for example, women who were earlier working on the farms, but they were never counted as the household heads, are now more visible to be shown that they are working on the farms, because data is being collected for them. Uh-huh. There is now examples of whether working conditions have improved or not. How many hours are they working? Are they getting any kind of insurance because they are working? And this global gap standard. has done so well in parts of kenya in terms of enabling these standards and improving certain kinds of conditions such as mm. improving overall water quality levels that the kenyan government actually decided to uptake part of this global standard and add it into part of its own food safety standards for the country so as wow, you okay Mm-hmm. Yes so as you see there's been a really interesting spillover effect that's happened in this process. Mm-hmm. And there are some similar examples for example in the grape sector in South Africa where there was a huge bottom up social movement fighting for better wages and the government actually complied because of also pressure from standard bodies such as the ethical trading initiative. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like I said there are significant benefits from using these environmental standards in the intro of this podcast we were also looking at the evidence that well not everybody benefits from these standards what is your evidence on that so there are some mechanisms that sort of work against suppliers that means people who are using these standards many people using the standards are based in the global south these could be smallholder farmers these could be workers on farms these could be small medium enterprises who are supplying and these costs are very high for example they need to pay not only for auditing costs they have to also bear costs related to all the fertilizers they should use the new kinds uh-huh. of machinery they may need to buy in order to comply with these standards right so as soon as you ask for a shift from local practices to new practices it becomes expensive and there's a a interesting book by an academic called stefano ponte who talks about this as the green supplier squeeze which basically means when you are thinking of a supply chain large companies like the big unilevers you have or the big cadbury's you have will put a lot of pressure on suppliers which are often these smallholder farmers to have to comply with these requirements and squeeze the margins that these farmers might be getting from having a better product because of all these other costs that are involved mm so uh, in fact the green suppliers squeeze says that a standard makes it harder for smallholder farmers to compete right exactly and you have touched this now from a theoretical level but do you have practical examples of this negative impact or this green supplier squeeze 
there are several examples that do exist, especially in the agriculture space. There are, um, there's work by people like Stephanie Barrientos and Carlos Oya and Alan Talentire who talk about um, in co many countries in Africa, commodities like avocados, green beans, flowers, which in general are showing that despite using some of these standards, it's actually had very bad effects on the quality of the soil in certain countries because of the way they have to grow these products. So, for example, in order to get certification, you have to be certifying a specific product. Now, for example, if you decide to grow only green beans, you can certify green beans. But if you grow something with the green beans, you have to certify both. Can you imagine mm -hmm. double the cost? So what many farmers do is they just grow one product and the problem of growing that one product over and over and over again is it depletes the quality of the soil. And that's something uh -huh. that's happened more and more and it depletes it to such an extent that even if you use good agricultural practices, the soil itself cannot be repaired. Um, you can see some examples even in countries like uh, Ghana or Nicaragua with cocoa where farmers are actually using fair trade but these fair trade premiums that means that the additional money they're getting because of supplying fair trade products is not necessarily equal to the living wages that they need to get or the living cost of living in the country so while there are benefits there aren't really as many benefits that enable them to have a better quality of life so on the environmental dimension, you could say, yes, there are benefits, but on the other dimensions, like economic or even social, you can see that there's also negative impacts. That's what you're saying? Yeah, even the environment has both positive and negative effects as well. So I think a lot of it depends on the product, the country and the context as well. So none of these standards are inherently bad. It's just how they are actually put into practice, which makes the, the balances of how priorities work that determines how well they might actually do in certain country contexts. But bottom line, you would say the general impacts of environmental standards is positive. Is that right? Yes, I would think overarchingly there should be a, there needs to be a positive thinking behind this, although and trying to mitigate some of the negative, but yes. And mitigating some of the negative, I mean, uh, before we recorded this podcast, we had have talked a little bit and you also said that it, it's also a problem that some of these standards are designed in the global north for the global south, often without really knowing the existing needs. Exactly. And I'm, I'm giving you an example like this. Now, for example, if Nestle decides, designs its own standard. Nestle is thinking about its own priorities, right? For them, mm -hmm. it is green reputation, perhaps. But then sure. the, the green squeeze that goes down to a farmer somewhere in Bolivia who are selling to them uh, isn't necessarily going to be the same benefit because what does a farmer care about green reputation necessarily, especially when they only own, say, two or three acres of land? For them, it's much more about existence. So this is an issue that happens when there are clashing priorities of how these standards are designed when they don't necessarily take into account local contexts and local 
cultures, for example. Mm -hmm. So would you argue that it's a good idea that the global south should establish their own standards? In theory, yes, I would argue that it would be. But let me give you two reasons of why it is positive and what some of the exact evidence on the ground might be because of this. Uh -huh. Okay, I think it's a very positive sign. Like, for example, countries like India, who are big exporters, say, of tea, want to develop their own standard rather than complying to international standards. Uh, they should be free to do so, accounting for the culture of the plantation and the way people work in tune with what is the quality of the soil, water resources, in tune with what the local governmental requirements might be. And there was one such example that was an attempt to be made, which was called trustee. Uh -huh. Now, trustee was set up between Tata Tea, which is a very large Indian tea company, which makes, for example, things like Tetley. And then there was, in partnership with the Tea Board of India, and along with international partners like Unilever and the Indian version called Hindustan Unilever uh -huh. and a few others. And now what happened through this process was there was such a clash with some of the actors who were from the global north, like Hindustan Unilever, who were Indian based but had international ties in comparison with the very local Indian tea board and Indian tea plantations that although they were able to establish the trustee standard, nobody really followed it. And there's been a very similar example in Kenya. So because global gap is so big in Kenya, Kenya decided, oh, why don't we start our own gap called Kenya Gap? Kenya Good Agricultural Practices for the Kenyan public. And again, what happened there was nobody took it up. And the funny part was that Both these standards were what we call equalized or harmonized to international standards. And yet it was not really taken up. What, what was the reason? Why, why do you think it's not taken up? Uh, and simply put, a lot of the uh, standards that really exist today are for export reasons. Mm. So when you have a local standard, it's difficult for countries in the global north to harmonize or accept Southern standards. And there were these clashes saying, why not just follow Global Gap? Why do you need to follow Kenya Gap? When a lot of the requirements are quite similar, even if not all requirements being similar. And these power imbalances often led to failure of local people taking it up because there wasn't a big enough local market for Kenya Gap or trustee. The power of an export-oriented label is just bigger than a locally-oriented label, right? Exactly. Mm. But what you're saying is we should take more into consideration the needs of the specific countries, the needs of the specific products. What else would you say can be done looking at environmental standards to enhance positive effects and avoid negative ones? If you think about the life cycle of a standard, so almost all the research that's done starts at the point of the standard already exists. These are the impacts, mm -hmm. right? What we need to do is let's take a step back and say, okay, if we had to design a standard, a standard that works for everyone, how would we start doing that? So the first stage would be 
thinking of how you can co-produce these standards, accounting for both the local knowledge of specific places in which you are going to implement the standard, as well as trying to harmonize priorities of these different actors who are there in the supply chain, like the big Nestle's as well as the little farmers who exist. So that standards can actually be a lot more targeted in nature and they can actually have net benefits across the chain rather than supporting some actors more than others. Mm. So I think that's the first stage is how you design it. And then the second stage is thinking about how much can a standard do? So we talk about the triple bottom line, for example, in sustainability, economic, social, environmental. Mm-hmm. But the difficulty with thinking about it in these terms is we need to be cognizant of the fact that the economic dimensions and the social dimensions might be easier to see. For example, if working conditions are bad, you can see it, right? Yeah. But if there is an issue with the quality of water over time or a fall in a water table or change in the slowly in the uncertainty of when rainfall will come, these are tougher to see. These are tougher to measure because these are environmental and may happen over a space of time. So it's important when you design a standard to be cognizant of what kind of indicators you want to think about for economic, social, and environmental that can actually be measured in a way that is positive and beneficial to everybody who is involved. The aim is that it's very difficult to get win, 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 win. Mm -hmm. But what you want to get, if you think about a whole supply chain, is a net positive effect that everybody wins at least somewhat across all these three different dimensions. And and finally, I would think it's important to trying to incentivize and give subsidies for farmers and different small medium enterprises to maybe take up certain types of standards that have actually done well in certain countries and to roll it out in a way because it helps them to level up which maybe the government has not been able to give them support for, but these standards might. And to mitigate the negative impacts like the green supplier squeeze, as you mentioned, right? Exactly. This can help mitigate that because when you level up yourself, then there's no longer a situation of squeezing Mm. because you yourself have been able to upgrade to an extent that's good enough to supply to a lot of these players. Now, let's imagine we have established the perfect standard. Um, We mentioned at the beginning, and you also said there are around 240 or 230. Um, Then it's 231. How do you think these standards actually will succeed on a market? Because from a consumer perspective, you already lose sight right now, no? Don't you? No, that's, that's very true. It's, it's very difficult, you see. The difficulty is, is that there are so many standards in the marketplace. Which ones do you take? Which one do you don't? Can you create? There have been questions that have been asked. Can you harmonize these 200 standards? Right? Can they become one big major standard that has everything in it mm-hmm. that everybody can follow? Then mm-hmm. maybe the costs will go down. It will all be fine. But... The problem is is that environmental, economic and social problems are quite different in different contexts. 
For example, if you have problems with greenhouse gases, these are quite different from issues around biodiversity. So it becomes almost impossible to create one perfect standard. But what you can actually do is to reduce the repetition that many standards have because a lot of standards ask for many similar things and instead create targeted standards, for example, that focus on certain things. So then when I go into a shop as a consumer and I see a specific label, for example, fair trade, I immediately think this is a social standard. Maybe I believe that labor is important and I want farmers to be fairly paid. I will buy this standard. And then you look at a different kind of standard that might be more targeted and say, as a consumer, for me, environmental consciousness is extremely important as well. So I will perhaps buy this standard. Mm -hmm. But the problem with all these standards are is there's always a premium for them in the market. And you need that premium because of the extra costs that go in to how these standards need to be implemented. But keep in mind that bearing this green supplier squeeze story, the squeeze is actually at the end of the chain, which means the farmer. So the farmer is not necessarily earning a huge amount more because mm. of these standards, but again, is not necessarily worse off because of these standards in many situations. But most of the money is being accumulated by these large companies instead. Thank you very much, Arti, for shedding some light into the environmental standards, their impacts, and also giving us a broader perspective on how environmental standards impact food and agriculture value chains. Thank you so much, Arti Krishnan, development and green growth expert from the Alliance Manchester Business School. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. It was great having you. This was our 11th podcast of Shaping Sustainable Supply Chains. We will be back soon with another one. Be safe.